Okay. So how was your week? Uh, it was great, my friend. Thanks for asking. How about you? Pretty good. Everything's good. Excited. It's always good when you can uh, complete another week. Yeah. Excited to talk to you again. I appreciate that. Thanks for having me back. Cool. So last time we talked about like movement and rolling, that kind of stuff. Yeah, rolling patterns. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So today I kind of want to talk about like the first thing I want to talk about is like how does core work exactly? <laughs> That's kind of asking like how pain works. <laughs> Nobody really has a freaking clue. Honestly, you know, that's the interesting part about what we do in fitness or health or science. You know, we go by what we think we know right now that we are sure is absolutely right. And then you realize you like uh, in the next week or the next day or the next year where, holy crap, we were totally wrong on that one. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, it's like we're living in this matrix where we think we've got it all figured out. Yeah. So one of my favorite quotes is uh, that I heard this and I kind of tweaked it up a little bit after I heard it. And it was originally from the uh, astronomer, astrophysicist, Neil deGrasse Tyson. You ever heard of him? Yeah, I, I heard of him. Yeah. So he said this quote once it really stuck with me. He said, the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. <laughs> uh, and I, I'd had the same reaction. I said, that's brilliant. Right. And yeah. because our feeble, our feeble little minds can't even grasp it. And I said, well, the same thing actually holds true for the human body because it's own vast universe, even just the, even just the brain itself, much less when you put it all together. So now I actually say the human body is under no obligation to make sense to you. It really doesn't care whether you think you've got it right or not. And you probably don't. So core is like core almost is like a trigger word these days. It's kind of like saying, um, you know, diet or nutrition or detoxification. As soon as you hear those words, everybody's got their own take on it and yours is right. And everybody else is stupid. Uh, so uh, I think core honestly is everything because the body doesn't think in individual parts. Listen, your body doesn't even know what the hell a core is. We made that term up and we actually named all the muscles that we want to put in the core. And your body's like, that's great, man, but I'm just doing my whole thing. So if you don't think that my big toe influences your core because it's not in the course that you studied, well, you're wrong. <laughs> so it's, it's everything. The, the most important thing is just to be more, um, what I call somatically, I mean, that's kind of movement, body, sense, aware of your body. Because once you become aware of your body, you're paying more attention to it. And you automatically change it when you pay more attention to it, right? So that's why I like a lot of these patterns that I talked about first on the ground. Because, listen, you started to move around on the ground before anybody told you what a core was or told you what all these muscles were, because that's how you had to learn how to move. And yeah. I thought to myself, well, I mean, if, if whatever you believe in nature, God, the universe, Buddha, I don't care what you believe in. If they were smart enough to start you out moving on the ground, then it probably is a good idea to revisit that place every now and then. But we usually don't unless we fall on it. 
And then you get really hurt that way when you fall on it. Uh, so moving down on the ground kind of reestablishes these patterns of things working together. And here's the key, what I'm trying to tell you, without you thinking about it. Because you didn't have to think when you were moving on the ground, your body and your nervous system just automatically sequence things together the way they're supposed to. So when you stand up and you start moving around and you start to think about, I'm going to engage this before this, and I'm going to pull in my core before I move that. Well, good luck. Cause that's not happening in real life. As soon as you stop thinking, you're going to go back to old patterns that are ingrained in your system, but it's hard to do that because you've been disconnected from it for so long that you need to revisit the ground every now and then. And that's why they do a lot of neurological training on the ground. When people have the, the strokes, or they have difficulty moving, they put them back on the ground and they start with very gentle light movement of different areas and different parts and have you become aware of it. And then you start to piece them together. Hence like those rolling patterns. And that's a lot of the place where people listening may have even taken some training with it or heard about this training. And that's called neurodevelopmental training. That's Mashe Feldenkrais method. Of, of moving around on the ground. Paul Check, the father of functional uh, training, actually was one of the first ones to start pioneering a lot of these uh, you know, baby fundamental movement patterns down on the ground because he saw a lot of carryover to making you really, really strong and functional when you want to stand up. Does that make sense? So I, I know, so core to me is everything because Core is actually your, your eyes. Your core is your neck because your whole nervous system, your whole body starts to think about what, what it needs to do with the movement as soon as you look at something. Cool. So the direction that you look changes. How, if I look left or I look right, it changes how my whole body functions just because of which direction I chose to look. Yeah. Right. So yeah. that's why eyes are a huge deal in athletics because as you have to track everything with your eyes when you're an athlete. And many people have dysfunctional uh, connection with the eye muscles working well with the rest of their body, but they don't really notice it because nobody ever talked to them about their eyes. Cause you know, if I need to catch a ball, I got to see it. If I need to throw a ball, I have to look where I'm going to throw it. Yeah. Right. And even with golf, I mean, before you even think about hitting the ball, you got to look at the damn thing on the ground first. <clears throat> so then I'm going to tell you what happens if you look down and there's something up with your eye muscles that look down or your neck flexors that tilt your head forward to look at the ground. As soon as you do that, if there's an issue in there, your whole nervous system has to deal with that. And here's the thing. I read another quote years ago that stood out to me. It was like, nothing is more terrifying than the idea of unlimited possibilities. Well, guess what? That's what it's like when you're going to start to deal with the human body in relationship to helping people recover from pain or athletic performance or coaching. It's anything. It's so overwhelming that you actually probably wouldn't, you probably don't even know what to do, but we got to start somewhere with at least the available information that we have. I just want to caution people not to fall on the sword of your information that you have right now as being 100% absolutely right, because I can assure you, you're 100% absolutely wrong if you think that. <laughs> so, true, man. So true.
So, uh, since then, why do you think that like coaches these days tend to like do what they call like core activation? Why coaches call it that? You mean? Yeah, our coaches do something. Oh, like coaches. That coaches. I think it's just yeah. I think yeah. it's just part of the. You know, it gets ingrained into something. It's it's part of the the shtick, if you will. So it's kind of like it's handed down. Somebody taught you, you teach them, you touch them. And it used to be used to be thinking that, you know, you do a plank and you're going to stabilize your core. But, you know, my, my friend Greg Cook says, if you got an issue with your core, planks ain't going to fix that shit. Yeah. I mean, he says it right then and there. Because when is the last time you ever moved like that? <laughs> You don't want to move when you're stiff as a board, because if yeah. you're stiff as a board, that means you can't move. So a lot of people begin to overstabilize when they have an issue with their body being able to uh, get good movement. They they stiffen up. And another one is they just think too much about movement. The more you think about movement, the less natural it becomes. Most of your movement is subconscious without yeah. you thinking about it, yeah. right? So 10% of your brain is devoted is devoted to voluntary movement. 10% of your brain is devoted to voluntary. That means that I'm going to, I see a bottle and I'm going to go lift it up. Right. Yeah. 10%. The other 90% is subconscious. That's reflexive. That's happening in the background. So you don't have to think about it. Because one, if you had to think about it, your brain would explode because you can't handle all the sensory input coming into it from everywhere. So most of the stuff you're consciously tuning out. But here's the rub. The 90% rules the 10%. You just think you're ruling it, but you have the 10% because that's the only one you're conscious of. But you don't, you don't know what you don't know, right? Yeah. There's, I mean, think about it right now. There's, there's information coming into your brain right now because of you sitting your ass on that chair and all those pressure sensors are coming on up and blood flow has got to change. Lymph flow has got to change. And if it keeps going in there and you don't move for a period of time, well, then you're going to consciously become aware of it because all of those, what they call nociceptors, which are potential threat receptors of possible damage coming your way. Cause you haven't moved in a period of time. Then you're going to say, Oh, my ass hurts. Now I got to move. Right. But what I want you to know is that information has been ruling what you've been doing without you knowing it. It's the iceberg that used the proverbial analogy of the iceberg. You see only the tip at the top. And then the most of the iceberg is below the surface that you don't see. So reflexive movement is more of that stabilization movement. So when I want to reach for that bottle, there's a lot more stuff that has to not move in order to keep you from not falling over. So that's why we go back to the ground and we do the rolling patterns and we do those things because you're reflexively uh, working those patterns without realizing it. I mean, they're just in your nervous system and you're, you're born with it, right? Just a reflexive action. You have that a lot in your, your protective behaviors. So let's go over a couple of them and you might understand why the body chooses to do what it does in relationship to movement. So the first thing you need to realize is your body's got one goal and it's to not be dead. That's the top goal, right? Looking good in the mirror is a distant second. 
because you can't look good if you're dead, right? Yeah. So everything that your body does is a protective reaction. Yeah. And the next thing is it likes to use the least amount of energy possible to accomplish that task, which means your brain is inherently lazy because that's metabolically smart. Right. Cause if I was out in, in nature and I use a lot of energy faster than you, well, I'm probably going to die faster than you are. Cause I'm shot. Yeah. So basically your brain is designed to cheat any, any damn time. It can't, it's called compensations and adaptations. Right. So it's actually a smart thing that your body does. <clears throat> and it, so it likes to use the least amount of energy to accomplish its task. So if I know those two things, I could figure anything out of why my body does what it does. So let's give you some uh, quick reaction ones. Let's say somebody uh, hits something and the ball or whatever is flying really fast at your face. What's your first instinct if someone's coming at your face? Dodge it. Yeah, you dodge it or you what? You reflexively put your hands up to protect your face. You don't just stand there and say, oh, I wonder what that is, because it's going to hit you, right? Yeah. So you're programmed to protect the head, neck, face, eyes, throat like this, because that's the most important real estate on your body. If I take that out, you're dead quick, all right? Yeah. And so what happens if somebody goes to punch you in the stomach? But if you can't run away? And All you right. can't punch them back. Yeah. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to curl forward. Yeah. So I'm going to take my stomach further away from your fist. Right. I'm not going to stand up straight and throw my arms in the air and stick my belly towards you. Right. Because yeah. that's just stupid. What happens if I'm going to kick you in the groin? What are you going to do then? Same thing. Yeah. Just curl. Yeah. You're going to throw your butt back. You're going to cross your, you're going to bring your knees together and your hands are going to come across the groin to protect yourself. Right? Yeah. So what you notice is that all of those reflexes were designed to protect what part of your body? <clears throat> the front. Right. So, cause the, the front is much uh, more important neurologically wise than the back of your body. How do I know that? Because your nervous system just told me that because when you flex forward to protect yourself, was it leave exposed in the back? Yeah. You're back. So it says, listen, I don't want to get hit anywhere, but I'd rather get hit in the back than the groin. Trust me. If anybody's yeah. had a choice between the two, you're going to pick the back every single yeah. time. Yeah. Right. So that's one of the reasons why you want to do a lot of these movement patterns on the ground, because they're designed to strengthen that front pattern the front part of the body, right? And then plus you're actually lying on the ground face down most of the time when you're doing these crawling patterns, these quadruped patterns and stuff like that. So what I want you to, to take away from that, what we just went over there is that there's things that happen reflexively without you asking your brain to do it. That's what, that's what I'm talking about of the 90% controlling your movement pattern. Right now we can influence some of that 90% if we have a lot of intention and awareness of the other 10%, right? It doesn't mean you can't control any of it, but that's why you work with a trainer. That's why you work with a coach so they can help you. So you have better reaction time when you're out on the field, 
even though it's not the same as out on the field because you can't duplicate the field inside because the field is real life. You don't know when somebody's coming to take you down quick, fast, and in a hurry. There's a lot of variables that go into that. But you try to get as close to it as you can in the, the training environment, if you will. That's like fighters. You know, that's why fighters go in uh, and you start punching a heavy bag first because you get comfortable punching a bag. But everything changes when the bag punches back, right? Yeah. So yeah. then you go in the ring and you do the MMA fighting and you get comfortable fighting. So when you get into a circumstance where a fight is happening, your nervous system says, oh, Okay, I've been there, done that. I'm cool. Let me keep my cool. I, I got my grooves going in my nervous system so I know how to handle myself. So you got that way from practice and from training, but not just one type of training, right? A lot of variability in your training. So one of the things that I like to do for people is to get a lot of variation, variability, and variety in the type of training routines that they do and have them begin to do things that they don't normally do, right? So so when they get to a situation, their nervous system feels more comfortable because you've exposed it to a lot of different stimuli, right? Yeah. Like if you only know one way to fight, hey, I got a great front kick, but that's all I got. <laughs> well, you, you ain't going to last long, right? It's, yeah. it's the guy who's going to yeah. take you right down to the ground and rear naked choke you out. <laughs> Get it, man. Get it. So, since like we talk a lot about movement and like, uh, let's say the muscle, mm -hmm. why do you think that like, why do you think that that like diaphragm is like people are talking about diaphragm recently a lot? Yeah, that's a good thing. They should. Yeah. Why do you, you think that, yeah. Why do you think that, that, that right, what I mean, why do you think that diaphragm is so important? Yeah, that's a great question. So here's the thing though I've learned is that people in our circle talk a lot about the diaphragm. People in the real world have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and that's why you need to remember these things that you learn that you begin to take for granted because you talk about it all the time. Um, the, the people that truly need it don't know about it. Yeah. So th that's a big lesson for all coaches is to remember your basics and your fundamentals are called that for a reason <laughs> because they're the groundwork of everything else. And I've come to discover over my years that most humans don't know what they are. And the diaphragm is a big one, okay? So first of all, those that might not know what the diaphragm is, diaphragm is just a term that actually means uh, it's something in your body that helps control pressure. So you've got your thoracic diaphragm. That's the one that most people talk about. But you've got a couple of other ones too. They're called diaphragms, but we don't talk about them like the thoracic. Another one is your pelvic diaphragm down below in your pelvic floor. <clears throat> But yeah, the diaphragm is the driver of life, honestly. So that's a muscle that sits down the bottom of your uh, rib cage, kind of like a parachute. And whenever you inhale, which you should be inhaling through your nose, not your mouth, because when you breathe in through your nose, you drive more pressure to your diaphragm. So you automatically move it more efficiently when you breathe through your nose, not your mouth. 
So when you inhale there, it actually increases pressure in the body, particularly in your abdomen. It's called intra-abdominal pressure or IAP, right? And pressure is a form of stabilization, right? Yeah. So yeah. the diaphragm attaches to your spine, so it actually helps stabilize your lumbar spine, your lower back. And stabilization, like I said, I may have said it last time, I can't remember, but stability always precedes force production. Yeah. Like you need you need to have stability for you to generate force. That's yeah. you know, that's kind of Paul check one on one right there. And when you when you increase pressure in your abdomen, a lot of people forget that you also move a lot of fluids that way. Blood flow in, blood flow out, and lymphatic fluid, which are important for delivery of nutrients and oxygen to tissue and waste away from tissue and cells that use the nutrients and oxygen. So it's it's the driving piston system for life. Okay. It's if you paralyze your diaphragm, you're gonna have a hard time breathing. You'll you'll know it. So it, it pushes the organs down actually towards the earth, or it pushes it towards the pelvic floor diaphragm basket waiting below. So inhaling pushes organs down. And then in, when you exhale, the diaphragm now comes back up. It was called eccentric contraction. So it relaxes and it pulls back up to the top. And then now the pressure decreases and then those organs get sucked back up. So you need to think about that as a pump, a pump of pressure in your body. And that pump gives you that central midline, quote unquote, uh, cylinder core stabilization around your ring. Think about blowing up a balloon where the whole balloon expands, right? Now, if you have an issue with the diaphragm where people, you begin to breathe through your diaphragm when you're younger because your nervous system knows to breathe through your diaphragm. That's why they always reference, hey, look at the baby on the ground and you see the baby with the Buddha belly coming on out, right? And you'll very often see that kind of belly on really great fighters and power lifters because they own strength through the diaphragm. Uh, but through the years, because of uh, the nervous system adapting or changing or stress, or we forget, we then begin to breathe more through the mouth and not through the nose. We breathe more through the lungs and the chest and the neck, and we lose that cylinder down below. So you lose your stabilization, you lose your strength, you lose your power. And then one of the things that happens is that if you lose that central stabilization, you have to get that stabilization from somewhere else. And one of the places that you're gonna get it is um, your, your body will take away your ability to move because you can't control it. That makes sense? Yeah, of course. This is okay. You don't have the stability from where you need it and you, you can't control the movement. So I have a novel idea. I'm going to take it away from you. And why does it take it away from you? So you don't get hurt, right? For protection. And one of the ways that it takes it away from you is really quite smart. It makes your muscles really tense and tight so you can't move them. And it locks your joints down so you can't move them. 
and then everybody gets decreased range of motion in the fascia and the joints. And then we're like, well, I could fix that, man. I can go in and I can get on a foam roller and I can do fascial massages or I can open up your joints and I can get better range of motion in a joint. But have you ever noticed that you always have to keep doing that? That it always keeps coming back and the tissues always tied again and the muscles tied. Why is it doing that? Because you haven't you haven't taken care of the underlying reason why they're happening. And then that's what? That's stabilization of the quote unquote core on the body and your breathing. So if I can get you down on the ground and put you into uh, a couple of diaphragm breaths and get you into a few rolling pattern ones or get you into quadruped where you're on your knees and you're on your hands and you're on your toes, right? With your tip of your toes or your ankles are dorsiflex. Basically, you're going to crawl. And then I have you do some breathing through your diaphragm and then have you crawl forward and backwards a little bit. That's going to make a difference in what you do with your soft tissue work and your mobility work. And you'll probably find that you don't have to do them as much or as often. And you'll feel stronger. You'll The reason you'll feel stronger is because you're moving more efficiently and it takes less effort to do it. So then you have more gas in your tank, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And you can mix those into your training program quite nicely. You know, you, you don't have to spend an hour in the corner doing all these activation drills. You can mix them into your training routine quite nicely. Yeah. Like I, I have people that, you know, they'll lift some really heavy stuff off the floor. And then I'm going to say, okay, I want you to go roll on the ground a couple of times, not sit on your phone and text somebody. And then, go back and then do your second heavy lift after you do your rolling patterns. And then usually what they'll say is, I don't know if this is crazy or not, doc, but I felt stronger on my second lift than I did on my first one. And I'm going to ask, why do you think that is? I just gave you the answer before you're, you're tapping into that stabilization, that nervous system, that sequencing that's happening for you. And if you can do rolling patterns on the ground efficiently, you're going to be way stronger when you want to pull something off the floor or carry something really heavy. Yeah. Makes sense. Yes, it does. Yeah. And I have, I, I, I tell people said, I don't have to prove it to you. You do it. You prove it to yourself. Yeah. Which means, all right, today I want you to go and do your normal lift. Then I want you to get down on the ground and try to do some of these rolling patterns, which you're probably not going to be able to do already because I, I could tell you you're probably not going to be good at it because you haven't done them before. But even if you just start to do a few of the movements to get the pattern down, and then I'm going to say, okay, now go and do your same routine. And then you tell me what difference you felt. They'll feel a difference. They'll feel a difference. Okay. And there, there's the buy-in. I mean, that, that's, there's the buy-in right there. It's, it's like before and after. Yeah. So does that mean like, does that mean like basically like everybody, uh, I mean, like every human being needs to like start with the basic with, uh, let's say, diaphragm breathing and like some rolling pattern? Yes. Yeah, because that's how everybody on the who's standing on this earth right now started out. Cool. Right? So I know, 
That's how everybody, I know you were at one point a baby. I know you were at one point on the ground. I know at one point you were breathing through your diaphragm like, like a master. And then you had to, you're like, okay, I'm on my back. I don't want to be on my back anymore because this is really boring. And I want to turn over and then uh, move around. So then you'll roll and you'll roll over to your stomach and then you'll crawl. And then you'll want to roll over to your back again because you get bored on the, the belly too. So you're developing all of these cross body patterns and, and it takes a lot of strength to be able to do that. A lot of strength to be able to do that. Um, so yeah, if you go back and you revisit that, your nervous system will remember. It never forgets anything, your nervous system, but just gets a lot of cobwebs on it because you haven't done it in a while. Yeah. And you'll feel the difference when when you do it. Um, and so, yeah, that's a base. That's kind of like I tell people, listen, if you're not drinking enough water, no, no amount of diet or training programs ever going to work for you. True. If you're not sleeping, no amount of rehab training is going to work ever. And I'll say the same thing, but if you don't do some breathing patterns to get your diaphragm down, all this other stuff ain't good. You got to tread water. You got to start there. And But here's the thing too, is that I need to see that you can own your breathing through the movements that you're doing. Because one of the benchmarks of whether your nervous system feels comfortable doing a movement is whether you can breathe while doing the movement, right? Assuming, assuming the threshold of the movement. What I mean by is if you got to lift a car off somebody or pull a powerful deadlift, you hold your freaking breath and you lift it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. But if you have to hold your breath when I'm having you in a half kneeling stance with one knee down and one leg forward, and I'm having you, uh, hold that and you can't breathe then to your nervous system. That's a, that's a position that is very threatening. It feels very vulnerable. in. how do I know that? Because it can't comfortably breathe there. So that means I have to take, uh, take and regress that back. And one of the ways that we can do that is to make you a little bit more stable. So this is a good analogy. I want you to think of the word stability and I want you to insert the word safety. Safety and stability mean the exact same thing. Right? Because if you feel safe, you feel like you're in a stable environment, right? If I feel stable, I feel like I'm safe. So yeah. if I'm in a half kneeling position, say left knee down, right foot forward, right? You may feel very unstable in that position because maybe you have an unstable left hip that can't hold you up. So one way I can make that stable is that if your right foot's forward, I'm going to move your right foot further away from your body. So I'm going to widen your base. You understand? Yeah. Because if I bring your right foot further in, you have a more of a narrow base and you're going to fall over. But let's say you can't hold, you can't breathe comfortably there. You can't do a movement that I'm asking to do. Maybe I'm just going to ask you to hold a freaking sandbag. That's it. Right. So how can I make that more stable? Well, I'm going to put both knees on the ground. Because now when I put both knees on the ground, it's a more stable base than just one knee on the ground. Yeah. And then you're holding your sandbag and then the person can breathe and feel comfortable. So I'm going to, I'm going to have you play there. Right. That's, that's one of the biggest things that they use with Greg Cook's work in the functional movement screen is 
when I get you into a position and you're in the position, can you take a breath, a diaphragmatic breath in? That means in through your nose and out through your mouth, right? Uh, comfortably. And it's also a really good screen, for instance. So remember, one of the things I always check for people is rotation. So because we mentioned in the prior episode that, you know, running and walking is rotation. Yeah. Uh, power is rotation. Okay. You need to twist to unleash power, but you have to control that twist. So I'll have people stand with their feet together and their arms are relaxed by their side and I'll have them rotate. I'll say, I want you to twist as far as you can to one side, you know, looking over your shoulder and twisting, but don't lean backwards because that's cheating. And you can bring your arms with you. I want you to twist as far as you can. And when you get there, I want you to stop. And I want you to breathe in and out through your nose and see how that feels and then come back towards the center. And then I'm gonna say now twist to the opposite side. And I'm gonna say, do the same thing, right? Take a breath in through the nose and go out through the nose and bring it back. And then what I'm gonna ask them, if I didn't already see it is, did you notice a difference in your ability to breathe well or comfortably with one side to the other side, right? And most often people will say, I struggle to breathe on both, which means there's some issue with rotation. Or they'll say, yeah, I really struggled when I twisted to the left. So I know that that left twisting is a, is a pattern that puts your nervous system into a vulnerable threat response. That's a really effective one to do with people that look like they have normal range of motion to both sides. Like I have athletes that can twist left and twist right and they get perfect range of motion. <clears throat> and then I have them do the breathing exercise and one is really much more difficult for them. So that's the one that we focus on. And I wouldn't have seen that if I didn't have them breathe because you can't cheat the breath. Breath to breath can't cheat. Right? So that's a really great screen to do for any coaches is if you have an athlete that you want to put them in a particular position, at least for an assessment or for a screen, see if they can get there and breathe when they're in it. If they can't, that means they're not ready for that position at that moment in time, you have to work them up to it. Cool, man. Cool. So we, we talk a lot about breathing and about that from, so, uh, if you're going to start teaching your client how to breathe, let's say it's the first time for, for the client and you're going to teach them how, like how to breathe, what are the things you're going to be working on? or you're going to be looking at? That's a great question. That's a really good question. So first of all, most people don't know anything about breathing. And when I uh, at, look at breathing, I'm just going to say, okay, um, just do me a favor. Take as deep a breath in as you can and blow it out. And what I'm looking for is I want to see where they breathe in from. Is it the nose? or is it the mouth? The majority of people, it will be through the mouth because they're, they're chronic mouth breathers, right? Mouth open. Uh, I already know you have dysfunctional breathing right away, right? Uh, 
because you're supposed to be going in through your nose. And I want to see where they exhale from. Do they exhale from the nose or they exhale from the mouth? Now, before I move on, I'm going to add something that's, that's a joke, but it's, it's kind of not a joke. If you find your way to me, I already know your breathing's messed up. Because <laughs> you don't find me unless you're a hot mess. Yeah. So, so to me, I already know your breathing pattern is dysfunctional. I just have to make you aware of it. All right. Um, <clears throat> because all breathing techniques work. That's what I want people to really understand. There's no perfect breathing technique because it changes based on the person that you're working with and what they're trying to accomplish and what task and context you're asking them to do. So they all work. It just depends on is it the right, right moment and right time for this particular individual? Because it may be at one point. Um, so I'll look at that. And then I want to see where do they, what moves when they breathe? Like when they breathe in, do the shoulders come up to the ears? So they're breathing in more from the lungs and the neck. Sometimes the neck muscles are really, really tight and you can actually see really tense muscles in the neck. That's dysfunctional breathing too, because they're top heavy breathers. That usually is a stress response uh, somebody who hyperventilates over breathes hyperventilation. They take too many breaths in during the day. Um, or are they breathing more from down below? It, are they moving in the abdominal region like the balloon? Most people will not because they don't know anything about the breathing. But it's not only that. You need to look, are they breathing from the sides of the lower rib cage and the back part of the lower rib cage? They all have to move like you just inflated the balloon. Because if you just expand front-wise in the belly, that is also a form of dysfunctional breathing because you don't own the sides. All right? So one of the biggest things that I look for is I place my hands, and you can place your hands or somebody can place their hands you know, on their belly and on, one on their sternum. And then I'll have them take a breath in and it's the easy classic one. Does the belly hand move before the sternum hand? Right? The belly hand should move before the sternum hand. Most people will move the sternum and then the abdomen or they both go at the same time. But what I do is I actually have someone place their own hands on the lowest part of the rib cage on the left and the right. And I'll do the same thing and I'll have someone inhale and I should feel those ribs and my hands separate sideways. And most of the time it doesn't. Yeah. Because the, because one, they're breathing through the shoulders or the chest or the neck, or what happens is that they're only breathing from the abdomen front wise that way. Because you need to expand what they call the, what I call the 360 degree cylinder, the whole quote unquote center core all the way around. And that gives you your uh, stabilization for your spine and your pelvis and for everything else. And here's the cool thing about breathing. As soon as you start paying attention to breathing, you change it. Yeah. I just need you to start to pay more attention to your breathing and Sometimes, see, when, when you have people that are really elite at a certain level, um, 
first of all, you can't assume that they know about breathing because they just may be really naturally good and talented and gifted, or they're pulling from so many other different places because they're really good at pulling from other places. <laughs> yeah. And they don't own their breathing. If you can help that person improve their breathing, that's usually the roadblock to a level of performance they would have never reached if they didn't start to do that. That's the difference between standing on the podium and getting the gold medal or you get bronze is the, the breathing for somebody to do. Um, but like I said before, it's context driven, right? You know, I, I don't expect you to breathe in and out through your nose when you're pulling 700 pounds off the freaking floor, you need to hold your, your cylinder in and, and yeah. pull it and do what you need to do. But if you do the other uh, breathing before that point, that's powerful, but you also have to make sure you have the requisite range of motion in your rib cage. So a lot of people have uh, tension and tightness in their thoracic spine. That's why I check your ability to rotate. So, um, but see, when you stand and rotate, there's a lot that has to rotate when you're standing. Like, like your foot has to rotate in and out called inversion and eversion. Your hips have to rotate. <laughs> <clears throat> your pelvis has to rotate your thorax, your neck, your head, your eye, everything has to rotate. So you may be stuck in rotation, but I don't know where it's coming from. It could be coming from a few of those or all of those, but that's why with part of the things that they teach you in, in the selective functional movement assessment is that you check rotation standing and then you have them sit down and check rotation again. And when they sit down and you check rotation, you took the hips out of it, the knees out of it, and the feet out of it. So then all you're looking at now is up top. So you can be a little bit more selective on where something is. So what I mean by that is that <clears throat> let's say that you're standing and you're twisting to the left and to the right, and then you don't get very far. But you sit down. And then you take the hips out of the load, the knees out of the load and the feet out of the load. And then you twist to the left and you twist to the right again, and you get way further. That tells you that the restriction in your rotation is from the hips down. So you have to go there. Yeah. If it doesn't change, then that means it's something that's going to be further up <clears throat> or it could be a stabilization problem. Right. So, one of the things that they teach you of how to know the difference between whether something is a true mobility problem, which means something stuck, doesn't move, or whether it's actually a stability problem, which means the body is making it not move on purpose in that moment. Okay. Mobility issues mean it's stuck no matter where you move it in space and time. Stuck is stuck. A stability issue means that it gets stuck in one motion, but not in another. So basically an example of that one is uh, <clears throat> if something is uh, stuck loaded, like it's a loaded pattern and I, I can't uh, move. But if I unload it, right, which I give myself more stability and something gets better, then it's a stability problem because it got better when I gave myself more stability. If it was a mobility problem, it wouldn't matter where I put you on this earth. It's going to stay that way. Yeah. You, you can't treat those two things the same way because the, the, they're not the same. 
a lot of people are chasing mobility problems that are actually stability problems. That's why they're not getting any better. That's why I said, do your breathing and then do your diaphragm stuff in conjunction with your mobility work. And you'll usually find you have to do less mobility work because you made yourself more stable. I'll contend, I've found in my experience of the people that I work with, most everything from a mobility standpoint is an underlying uh, stabilization issue in the body. Yeah. From somewhere. Yeah. Because the nervous system, if the nervous system doesn't want you to move, if it feels like it's uh, threatened anyway, or it's it's not safe, it just takes away your movement. So an example of loaded versus unloaded, when I go back to that, is let's let's talk about hamstring tension. Because nobody ever has that, right? Um, you'd say, okay, I want you to stand with your feet together, knees together, and I want you to slowly bend forward. And if something hurts, stop. I already know you got a problem. And can you touch your toes? I want to see how far down they go. And let's say they reach just a little bit past the knee. Right. And then most people would say, okay, well, that's tight hamstrings. Well, yeah, but why are they tight? So then I'm going to say, I'm going to unload you. I want you to sit on the ground and put your legs out in front of you. And now I want you to lean forward and touch your toes. And let's say when you do that, you touch your toes. You gain six inches. Well, what happened? So obviously it's not tight hamstrings. It, it was tension and tightness that the body gave you stability by tightening up the hamstrings so you don't fall over and crush your face on the floor. Yeah. Right? Because when you sat on the ground, you were more stable because first of all, you were closer to the ground, but you also had more body mass on the ground. So then I lowered your threat response. I lowered your tension response. And then now your brain said, sure, man, let's touch. There's no problem. Go ahead. So you can, uh, you can stretch those hamstrings every single day for the rest of your life. And you're not changing anything. True. Cause it's not a hamstring problem. It's the nervous system issue. And the first place you might start with that is helping your breathing a little bit. Right? Yeah. And doing a couple of roll. I've had people do a couple of diaphragmatic breaths where I'll just say, okay, let's start baby steps. Put your hand on your chest, put your hand on your abdomen, make the abdomen move first. All right. For about two minutes in through your nose, out through your mouth. Okay. And then I want you to roll to the left or roll to the right once. And then now what I want you to do is sit and touch your toes again. And then I'm going to have you stand up and touch your toes again. And usually you'll get further toward touching your toes. Yeah. That should make a whole lot of heap of sense to people that understand how yeah. the body will give you tension and tightness. That's what I'm trying to get back to is why in the world is your body always locking your tissue down and your joints down? It's to protect you. That's why it's doing it. It's not doing it because it's bored. It's got a reason. It never does anything without a reason. And if you know that tightness and tension is a safety response, right? A threat response. That's how you have to go about helping it, right? 
Yeah. That's how you're gonna have because e- even if it's a if, if it's a true mobility problem where something gets locked up, because sometimes that happens, right? Like like let's say a hip joint, like hips get stuck a lot. They usually get locked where they can't internally rotate very much. And they usually can't go into extension very well, which is backwards. Because most people sit all day and the hips in flexion and their legs are crossed out into external rotation. <clears throat> and most people walk with a posterior pelvic tilt. That means their butt tucks up into themselves yeah. just like this, like they're at the top end of a um, hip thruster, posterior pelvic tilt. So posterior pelvic tilt flattens the back, flattens your ass, and it duck walks you out, your feet out. So you feed the external rotation. Um, so w- when you're doing that, you can lock the hip socket down. So let's say it's a true mobility problem, and then I can get the hip back to its range of motion. Well, now what you have to do is you have to teach the nervous system uh, and the body and the brain how to control and work with that new range of motion it's not used to. And you have to do it slow and easy. See, what most people do is this. They're going to move the hip. Uh, they're on the ground or they're on the table, first of all, right? Yeah. Most of the time. Which means you made them more stable so they can relax. So I can get perfect motion in that hip. And then what a lot of people will do is say, okay, now stand up and walk. No, because I just put you in the most complicated movement pattern on the planet and your whole body weight curls down into your hip and your nervous system has no freaking idea what to do with the new range of motion. So what will it do? It'll go back to what it's always done, which is lock it down. True. Why? Because it's what has been working for it up to this point. So I'm going to take you right back to what I just told you the whole podcast here. After you move the hip on the table, have them do some diaphragmatic breaths, have them do a rolling pattern or have them do a rocking pattern and then stand up. Because now the, the the hip is starting to get, oh, the hip, okay, we're not loading it too much. All right, and I'm, I'm finding my diaphragm. Oh, wait, but the hip is attached to the other hip. This is good. And then I'm going to move around a little bit. So then you engage the crossbody core slings. And then when you stand up, you didn't go from zero to 1,000 miles an hour and overload your nervous system because it'll go right back to the same protective behaviors over and over and over until you tiptoe in. But that's the problem when people reach elite levels. They want to go hashtag beast mode, badass, elite monster, you know, pain is weakness, leaving the body bullshit all the time. And I'm like, you can't do that. <laughs> you may thr- you may full throttle at that level for a little while, but you're usually going to get hurt yeah. or you're not going to have the duration of the career that you could have. Yeah, exactly. And you feel that the older you get, because, yes. you know, age, you can do a lot of dumb things and get away with it. <laughs> <laughs> Did that make sense? How that yeah, we tied together a little bit? Yeah, of course, man. That's kind of like sums up everything. Yeah. Appreciate it, man. Really loved it. That's kind of like all the questions I have for you for these two weeks. And you kind of like sums up everything at the end. 
I really love that. Appreciate it, man. Uh, you're very welcome. Well, you know, it's it's a lot of things I've learned over these years of, first of all, me just making the mistakes myself. Because that, that's really the only way you truly learn these things is true. by true. experiencing them and living through them. And, yeah. you know, but then I, I really uh, opened up my mind and learned from a lot of really smart people. And a lot of it's really important that you lot, learn a lot of different viewpoints or approaches because everything works for someone. You need to remember that. It just depends on um, for the individual that that you're with. And if their nervous system is ready for what you're bringing to it and whether you are the state of your mind as a coach. Yeah. And for, to be open-minded to say, yeah, okay, well, I never thought about that before, but it makes sense. Or wow. Don't, don't be afraid to admit when you got something wrong and make mistakes. I, I, I forgot. I was a martial arts teacher that said something like this. It's like, the quicker you make mistakes, the faster you learn than anyone else. Yeah. That means don't be afraid to explore and experiment because you'll learn what you should not have done. Right. So you may not learn what you're supposed to do, but you'll learn what you weren't supposed to do from what you just did. You get it? <laughs> so you'll, you'll be on a different pathway regardless. The point is just to get off the, the same pathway all the time. That's the, that's what movement is. Movement is exploration and play. So my, my fate, people say, doc, what's the best way to move? My answer is yes. Which I just, I just want you to move more of yourself more often, more ways, more environments. If you can do those core four things, you're going to be in a good place, but most people, you know, isolate movement too much. Yeah, they, they don't move very often. They only devote like gym time and they don't move any other time at, at most levels of fitness for people. Okay? And more ways is they like people like to do the same kind of movement they're good at. They don't like to do things that they're not so great at. So they don't explore. Right. So so uh, if you if you do yoga, maybe lift some weights. If you lift weights, do yoga. That's what I mean. And then more environments is a really big one that. That means change where you move. And the number one tip I'm going to give you is why don't you start moving more on the ground? That's the number one environment I want you to revisit first. And it'll make a huge difference when you stand on two feet. Yeah. Appreciate it. I, I, I really love it. I really love it. I'm, and I, I think that coaches need to hear these kind of stuff. Coaches that nowadays, I they I think they, they, they are afraid to make mistakes. Hmm. Yeah, that can you can do that, especially when you get into a higher level of athletics and professional sports. You know, you you kind of get scared to do that because nobody wants to do anything different yeah. that hasn't always been done because you don't want to be the guy that they point to. Yeah. And say, you know, hey, he did this and then I never had this before. And plus, it's when you get in that arena, you have a, a lot of people that are on these power trips and they're like, you can only do it this way. You can't do it that way. No, 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 no. And it's like the world of research and medicine stuff doesn't really change often. Yeah. And you stay with with old stuff. I, I get it. I totally, totally get it. But 
I will contend that if you can help somebody do um, some better breathing patterns, get into a couple of rolling patterns and learn to control their own body mass a little bit better on the ground, there's no way that you're going to do anything but help them be better at whatever they're trying to do. Just those three things. That right there is your your water, your hydration, and your sleep. That's big. Yeah. Love this. I really love cool. this. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it for the time, man. So you got it. last thing before I let you go. So yeah. if, if there's like coaches or like therapists are interested in what we are talking about today, where can they reach out to you? Oh, very easy to find me. Uh, Stop Chasing Pain. If you type that into any search engine, my website will show up. And I'm on Instagram a lot, probably at this point, what you might call an unhealthy amount, but uh, that's the best place to find me on Instagram. Yeah. And we have a lot of different resources for people that want to learn or, uh, and I do see clients as well. If anybody's in the United States, I'm in New Jersey outside of um, New York city. And um, you'll see some resources in there of people that I learned from, but some of the people that we mentioned, uh, especially in this webcast was my dear friends at, uh, you know, functional movement systems, functional movement screen, or the selective functional movement assessment. That's more medically oriented uh, for people. If you want to go to there, you can't go wrong uh, diving into their, to their work. And I've, I've written a lot with them and for them and stuff like that. So like we mentioned before, if you go on to uh, my YouTube channel or um, Google and you type in rolling patterns and my name, you'll find a lot of good information to read and uh, even some stuff on the neurodevelopmental patterns that we discussed today. Please do visit the website and the it's like there's like great stuff on it. Thank you very much. I like to think so. Yes. <laughs>